everyone. Welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show planned for you today, and Brianna Joy Gray is with us here, of course. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. And let's get right to the news. What's up first? Well, Robbie, the Daily Beast has released more previously unseen texts sent by Tucker Carlson before his ousting from Fox News. In texts sent to fellow host Jesse Waters in December of 2020, Carlson again lamented former President Trump's false claims about the 2020 election. Quote, it's so sad, Carlson texted. He's going to break some SHIT. He already is. I wish I knew where to run, but I'll die here. In other fall 2020 texts, Brett Baer shared a video clip showing Trump lawyer Sidney Powell tell Maria Bartiromo that Carlson was insulting, demanding, and rude in his insistence that she provide proof of the election being stolen. Carlson replied, see you next Tuesday. <laughs> see you in T, the expletive. I mean it. The Daily Beast said Carlson did not respond to a request for comment, while Fox News pointed to letters it sent to Dominion last week complaining about media outlets obtaining more unredacted documents. And mainstream advertisers who had avoided Carlson's primetime show are reportedly returning to the 8 p.m. slot now that he is out of the way. According to Variety, mega, and firm Procter, mega ad firm Procter & Gamble is now airing ads for female-skewed products like razors, weight loss pills during that hour. Fox's ratings, however, were fairly low for the past few weeks on Friday. The 8 p.m. hour placed last amongst cable news shows in the key 25 to 54-year-old demo. It was the overall numbers were still uh, significantly higher than CNN's, although uh, MSNBC edged them out in the 8 p.m. hour. So that is interesting, and I, th I think that reflects the stable Fox audience. Yes, they're still there; their TVs are still on, but. For, for those who believed, you know, Tucker brought young people actually were mm -hmm. tuning in for Tucker specifically, there would be some evidence, I think, for that claim that they've departed and are waiting for whatever he does next. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic to consider that while the overall ratings might be down, there might be some more ad opportunities because certain advertisers, regardless of the profit incentive, were unwilling to pay to run ads on Tucker's show because of various right. controversial subject matter. Look, my understanding is, and I, I, I don't know, but my they're like, you know, at, at a distance understanding of the business model is that cable um, channels, including Fox, are mainly making their money not necessarily through advertising, but through the, the, the fee they're charging for, for it to be part of a cable package on Comcast or on Fios or whatever it is, hmm. so, which is how they can still be. Because some people say, well, how could, you know, if, even if he has, Tucker has all these people watching, there's no advertisers on his hour. It doesn't matter how many people there's watching, they can't make money off of it, but it, it has to do with how much they can charge to be part of the cable package. And that pass, that gets passed on to people who are, you know, paying for the for the cable package from the cable well, company. What do you make of the new um, ongoing releases about private texts and conversations, et cetera, that Tucker Carlson has been having beyond the scenes? I've seen some commentary uh, that says, you know, ultimately, this isn't going to change anybody's opinion about the, about him. It might actually make people think he's even more based. Uh, I mean, what do, you, what do you make of it? Based in red pilled. Um, yeah, look, he, he was calling out Sidney Powell there for being an utter fraud, which is something he did on his show as well. He laid into her when she would not back up her claims about the election. Um, yeah, there have been some other drip drips of. I, I, we did talk about this last week while you were on vacation, but the the you know kind of behind the scenes leaked footage that Media Matters was kept obtaining. I know some people thought Fox was leaking it to them to make Tucker look bad. Mm -hmm. um, now their their Fox's position is that Dominion is leaking. 
leaking it, and mm -hmm. they've ordered them to stop doing that. I don't think any of the leaks really added up to much for me personally. They. It showed, you know, he was trying to, it, sometimes he was with guests, he was trying to amp them up before he interviewed them. If you had a camera on us in our, in our preparatory uh, part for the show, I, I don't know that I would want all that footage aired, right? Sure, sure. I mean, I think the you most You know, we're laughing, we're joking around, it's to, it's to yeah, I mean, up the, well, up the certainly energy. Certainly there is a level of um, informality that exists. One might argue that, you know, a word like, you know, see you next Tuesday. I is, love, I've never heard that, that. I don't know what else to call it yeah. right now in the context yeah. of this conversation <laughs> on air. But you know, a, an, an mm -hmm. expletive for female private part um, that is often considered to be one of the worst expletives you can use. Although not for the British. Right. It's they only have a other... moderate expletive. Yeah. Fun fact, when I was in high school, the school store, I, I went to an international school, and the Americans who ran the school store sold fanny packs, which is a perfectly fine thing to say in America, but did not go over well with the British parents, who considered that word to be analogous to the one that really? I am bleeping out right now. The word fanny? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I did not know that. But I want to ask you, though, it's less the kind of colorful language that I think could be a problem for people who are supporters of Tucker Carlson and supporters of Trump, but the statements that continue to demonstrate that Tucker disagreed strongly with Donald Trump mm -hmm. about his election denialism. And it does seem like Trump has continued to take that sort of approach as he moves into his 2024 race. And do you think that's going to uh, cause any friction if Tucker does hang up his own shingle, if he does interview Trump going forward, if he is a taste setter in the Republican primary race, what is that going to do to Donald Trump, who ha he has been broadly supportive of despite the disagreement on election denial. Well, look, I really hope Republicans take this to heart. Even someone like Tucker Carlson, someone who is very I would sympathetic to the to the MAGA Trump agenda overall, who helped used his influence in conservative media to push the rest of the party in that direction to reward political figures who are agreeing with Trump's foreign policy, his economic policy, who who you know, who who wants to move things in that direction. Even someone like Tucker Carlson doing all that knows that the election stuff is like an irritating distraction at best mm -hmm. and is is the party shooting itself in the head at worst. Because I, I think he knows and he understands that what is, should be obvious to everyone, that voters do not want to relitigate the previous election. Swing voters, moderate voters, people who are gettable for Republicans, even gettable for Trump, don't want to talk about that at all. They don't agree. They don't care. Even significant numbers of Republicans find it extremely embarrassing that it keeps getting brought up. They think what happened on January 6th is embarrassing. Maybe they don't think it was the greatest crime ever you know, committed against all of humanity. Sure. But it's not something that should be on the agenda. And Tucker knows that, despite agreeing with or, or wanting to support Trump's agenda in so many other ways. But that is, is not but, part but, of the agenda, and people need to get this that. This is what the, the Dominion lawsuit, the heart of the Dominion lawsuit, really revealed. It's that there was this weird, twisted web where Tucker's personal beliefs conflicted with what Fox News apparently believed was the best financial formula to retain viewers uh, and keep their ratings high, which was to uh, accommodate uh, shall we say, uh, Trump's election denialism. And what we saw from the behind-the-scenes texts, et cetera, is that there was frustration 
but even though Tucker Carlson disagreed with Trump on truth or, you know, election denialism, mm -hmm. he still was critical of Fox News hosts who publicly said as much because there, he was participating actively in Fox News's choice to do that for, for ratings, right? So what happens now that he's out from under Fox well, News, does he continue to kind of soft pedal that issue? Does he come out and say, I never wanted to soft pedal that issue. I always uh, you know, strongly disagreed with Donald Trump, and I'm willing to have it out with him in a public sphere. And does that put pressure on Trump that hasn't existed before from one of the most influential people in conservative news to actually change his tune on that particular subject? I mean, it should. <laughs> like, anyone being honest with themselves, I mean, even if you fully believe what Trump is saying about the election, which, to be clear, I do not, mm. it, it whether it's, like, correct and whether it's good political strategic uh, uh, idea to lean into that are actually different things, theoretically could be different things. I don't think they're different things, but they could theoretically be. Don't don't lean into that. And I don't know that Donald Trump is capable of comprehending that, right? He just feels like he's so bruised from the whole thing. He clearly buys into it. But maybe, maybe he has advisors telling him, like, stop talking about this. I mean, he hasn't brought it up very much lately. He was interviewed by, by, uh, by Tucker at great length in one, what turned out to be one of Tucker's last shows, and they didn't talk about it very much at all, I don't think. Yeah, I think uh, it's difficult Maybe he Tucker. has less of a He's in a, need he's to in talk a difficult situation, it. because whatever credit that he might get for not believing in Stop the Steal, he loses for participating in Fox News's choice to go ahead and well, promulgate I, again, that we, narrative we, to a You and I have degree. a slightly different view about this. I, they, I, I don't object to bringing people on who made those claims and then you know maybe you can argue it should have been done somewhat differently uh, but he did ask for the and when the evidence did not was not forthcoming then he skewered those people. So what do you make then of Tucker's choice to behind the scenes call for a Fox News reporter who publicly disagreed with the stop the steal narrative to be fired? I mean maybe it wasn't appropriate for that employee to object in the way they did. I think they, he was, so he was upset specifically about their social media behavior towards right, Sean this, Hannity. This wasn't some unhinged, personalized mm -hmm. social media rant. This was a journalist saying, I disagree with the facts that came out in an interview. So the idea that it was just a personnel right. or, or a, an HR issue as opposed to I a mean, substantive I mean, a number of publications, media companies, including the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the rest have, have had to deal with these issues with news reporters not liking opinion content and vice versa and having messy fights about it on social right, media. Right, but this wasn't I a commentary about an opinion different. reporter. It was a, a, a reporter simply saying the, the, the argument that the election was stolen that was articulated on this broadcast was wrong. So, and then you're going to call for your colleague to be fired as a consequence of that? This is what I'm saying. I, I, I think almost he's in the worst possible position mm -hmm. because his authentic beliefs, while somehow in some ways validating to many people who have been frustrated by the whole stop the steal narrative. I mean, I don't, maybe Fox agreed with you. They let go. They got rid of him, right? <laughs> so Right. But the, que the question is, now that he is no longer influenced in whatever way he was influenced by what Fox's financial decisions were, is he going to make the same kinds of decisions as he attempts to create his own new enterprise, potentially his own new show, where he's courting a same audience who also was interested in a Stop the Steal narrative? Or does he do a break and come out and, and be confrontational to that audience and confrontational to I Donald Trump about fundamentally not believing that the election was stolen? I think smart people know that Stop the Steal stuff is just like a dead end at this point. And 
Tucker is smart enough issue, to realize that. But that's a different issue, isn't it? Well, that's what I said. That's a different issue but, of whether it's right or not. Yeah, but. Right. So the the issue of strategically whether he should he should stick behind it is different from the issue of him as a human being and the ethics of saying one thing that he didn't believe in the context of Fox News. Now the question is, is he going to say his truth? Now that he that, now that we one know his truth and two he's not no longer in Fox, or does he continue to soft pedal the lie because that is the very thing that got him the ratings in the first instance? And it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. That's that's all I'm saying. All right, more rising right after this. The White House press office banned the New York Post from attending President Biden's only daytime public event yesterday as prosecutors approached a decision on Hunter Biden charges. The Post infamously first covered Hunter's abandoned laptop back in 2020. In a story from a couple of days ago, Politico reported the White House is bracing for the political fallout from the charging decision in the Hunter Biden case, and apparently they've concluded that Republicans will attack them over it, whether President Joe Biden's son is criminally indicted or not. The article later said Politico has not authenticated the hard drive files that underpinned a New York Post story about the laptop, but Politico confirmed the authenticity of some emails on the drive in a 2021 book. In response to this, journalist Glenn Green Greenwald wrote, what Politico is doing here is as transparent as it is deceitful. Even liberal corporate outlets, The New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, CBS, now admit they authenticated the Biden laptop. But Politico, the first to spread the lie, can't admit this or else they'd be forced to retract their story. Yeah, and it's important to point out uh, Politico was the most egregious um, uh, purveyor of that of that incorrect uh, letter about the laptop story being disinformation. Remember, the letter itself, which was signed by a bunch of former um, national security officials, used very careful language to avoid getting themselves in trouble, where they said the laptop has all the hallmarks of a Russian disinformation campaign. Um, the Politico headline, I just pulled it up right here, says, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo. Dozens of former intelligence mm -hmm. officials say they did not say it's Russian disinfo. They said it looks like Russian disinformation, and I still think you should criticize them for saying that. But Politico spun it, and like that's still up. <laughs> this story yeah. exists. That headline wasn't corrected. It should be correct. It's it's not accurate. They didn't say that in their letter. Yeah, absolutely. So for them to you know say you know which we've not authenticated. It's uh, really, really shameful. It does on their feel part. like they're they're covering their tracks and that yeah. they are the ones that absolutely cannot talk about this. I mean, what do you make of the broader decision to bar but, right, the post we talk about that. from the the briefing in the first place? Biden's gotten a lot of heat for not doing a lot of um, interviews with the press, taking questions directly from the press. Here is one of the few opportunities that they have. Does it make sense for them? Is it ethical for them? Is it in line with the hallmarks of journalistic integrity that they were just crowing about in the Correspondence Center a week or so ago? Absolutely not. And where are all the, why aren't there uh, the other people in the media? Well, democracy dies in darkness. Mm -hmm. Where's the outrage that the White House would, would restrict access uh, to, a, to an outlet that is critical of of them, critical of and and involved in reporting on what Hunter Biden may or may not be doing. Um, you think if the shoe was on the other foot, if it was the Trump administration barring, for instance, the Washington Post because they didn't like how the Washington Post had reported on some element of the Trump administration, they'd be up in arms. There, there'd be there'd be fury among mainstream media folks. Yeah, look, it is clear, obviously, <laughs> that Hunter Biden being charged 
is make is is going to be characterized as an indictment of Joe Biden and his viability as president and his corruption and all these other things, whether or not that's a legitimate connection to make, whether or not there's proof of that connection to make. However, that is not, it is, it is not the job of the White House to preemptively bar an entire media institution from being able to ask questions about what is a newsworthy event. And it seems to me that Biden should spend more time coming up with answers to questions that more than just the Washington Post is going to want to ask about the nature of Hunter Biden right. being charged, what impact this may or may not have in his campaign. And I would like to hope that other journalists despite not being on this beat in the way that the New York Post has been, still ask the questions that are completely germane to the public's interest here. Right. It's worth recalling as well, and I have when I've talked about this in a radar I did on this, when Joe Biden addressed the laptop story during a debate with Donald Trump, he, too, used that letter mm. to justify treating it as Russian misinformation. That's what he said when asked about it. He said, and, and Trump reacted kind of like, are you, oh, my God, you're doing Russiagate all over again? He's totally right. That's exactly what Biden went for. And he was allowed to do that, or he had covered to do that, because that's what all those national security officials, you know, who are all talking heads on, on CNN and other places, uh, that's what the, that was the cover they provided, and it was totally 100 percent incorrect. Yeah, as we covered the, the, the Twitter files angle of this story and Twitter's choice to take this story down when it first aired, we argued, or at least I argued in part, that the cover-up seemed to be worse than the crime. You know, the fact of the suppression was a story that had a longer tail on it than the laptop and its contents itself and its relevance to Biden and his campaign and his administration and all of that. And this feels like an extension of that mm -hmm. same principle, where in some ways it's more offensive for the White House to bar a news outlet from a press briefing than to you know, give a pat answer to a question or to decline to take a particular question or to kind of fob off and say, well, this isn't that important, and to give the kind of response you might expect in this kind of scenario where they're trying to downplay the relevance of something. I think that would have come across much better than what here seems to be like a fundamental abrogation of their responsibility to the freedom of the press. Yeah, the cover-up is much worse than the crime. The cover-up is extraordinary actions that were taken to suppress the story on social media. Uh, many of those, some to some degree, those decisions freely chosen by the social media companies, but also as part of a broader pattern of federal pressure on them to take misinformation, alleged misinformation, more seriously. Mark Zuckerberg saying he was warned just before Facebook took that action against the story. He was warned by law enforcement that to be on the lookout specifically for something Russian. Um, you know, after all the after he was you know publicly pilloried for what happened in 2016, uh, all mainstream forces laying the blame for. Trump's election at the feet of Mark Zuckerberg. That was the social media side. Then this extraordinary law enforcement uh, claim that it was Russian disinformation. It wasn't. President Biden able to use that to cover for it. And now, and now they don't even want to talk. They don't even have it in the press briefing room, right. the outlet that broke that story. And yeah, then other yeah. outlets are going to say, which we have not, other outlets being Politico, we haven't authenticated it. Yeah. It's, it's authenticated. Catch yeah, up, guys. Yeah. Catch yeah. up. And to be clear, I mean, we've talked about this this whole time without actually talking about what the charges are, of course. I mean, we've done so in the past, but um, one is that Hunter Biden failed to report all of his income to the IRS, and two, that he made a false statement in relation to buying a gun in 2018. I think that was as you had to make a statement that you have not had uh, certain drug-related issues, which he uh, misrepresented. And so what, there's this funny thing that's happened now where 
just like we just did, you're able to talk about this issue and people could, are probably projecting more than what, what that Hunter Biden is actually being charged with on the situation because they're not answering questions directly and talking specifically about what he actually did. I think that a world where, where Joe Biden simply takes questions and says, but my, mm -hmm. my kid didn't file his taxes right. You know, he, he made a mistake and didn't take a box he was supposed to as he was exercising a Second Amendment right to, you know, have a gun. That, right. I mean, that is what it is, but it has nothing to do with me and my presidency and your focus on this is politically motivated, yada, yada, yada. He can make those kinds of arguments. But in the absence of a concrete discussion about what's actually happening, you do create this weird kind of mushy void of suspicion where we're just talking about charges against the president's son that he's trying to dodge in a way that I think actually reflects worse and worse on President Biden. But They've the made it look more suspicious. Yeah. 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 All right. More rising right after this. Stay with us. The victims in this weekend's tragic outlet mall shooting in Texas have been identified. They include sisters Daniela and Sofia Mendoza, who were in fourth and second grade. Their mother still hospitalized in critical condition. 20-year-old Christian LaCour, who worked as a security guard at the Allen Outlets Mall, and Cindy Cho, Caillou Cho, and their, uh, their three-year-old son, James Cho. Their other son, who's just six years old, survived the shooting and is the only remaining member of the family. New images pulled from the social media accounts of accused shooter Mauricio Garcia have circulated online. According to reports, police are investigating Garcia's online post for ties to neo-Nazism and white supremacy. It's seen pictured there, several uh, white supremacist tattoos, Nazi tattoos. Some cons conservatives online have raised doubts over whether Garcia, a Hispanic man, could really be a white supremacist. The views Anna Navarra weighed in on the discourse. Let's watch. So we all have to remember that the head of the Proud Boys, his name is Enrique Tarrio. The Proud Boys is a white nationalist group. Look, being Hispanic or being black does not, or being anything, does not make you immune from being racist, from being radicalized, from being a white supremacist, from being evil, from being homicidal. And we are seeing it over and over again. There are people, you know, they, they don't see themselves as what they are. Joining us now to weigh in is President of Bienvenido, Abraham Enriquez. Welcome, Abraham. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, obviously, this is just such a, a hard and tragic um, subject. You know, how do you respond to this kind of discourse about whether it's conceivable or how it can be that someone who is a minority but also has prejudice or is, is part of a white nationalist movement despite not being white, maybe, you know, white nationalist being the wrong terms, it's extremism or something of that nature. But, but you know, what do you make of the difficulty people are, the juxtaposition people are having between the perpetrator's racial identity and, and their views? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's such an important topic. And I guess some breaking news here on The Rising is that Hispanics can, in fact, be racist. Uh, look, for many of us, like myself, who have lived and even traveled throughout Latin America, we know that racism exists. And unfortunately, it's a sick poison that isn't exclusive to just one type of person, uh, one type of culture. It exists in many different parts and areas of society. Uh, so I think this is a good uh, a good reason for us to come together and realize that whether you call it white nationalist, um, extremist, racism is racism. We must be able to identify it and call it out like it is.
Yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking at an article from the LA Times that pointed out that 53% of Latinos identified as white in 2010. This article is talking about how those numbers dropped significantly in 2020 down to about 20%. Still, obviously, a significant chunk of Latinos are identifying as white. Um, we're seeing pictures of the guy with a swastika tattoo in his chest with what are called SS bolts, uh, a Nazi tattoo on his arm. It seems evident and uncontroversial that he adopted kind of a bigoted white supremacist ideology. There are screen grabs that have been uncovered where he speaks in open anti-Semitic terms about a teacher that he had. He said that this post was inspired by Libs of TikTok, a account that we've covered a lot on here that attempts to skewer what it perceives as left-wing excesses now being linked to this mass murderer. It does feel as though there is an effort to um, use this man's identity as Hispanic as a way to kind of downplay the influence that white supremacist rhetoric seems to be having on at least some of these um, perpetrators. What do you make of that? Look, um, I am very concerned on some radicalism that's happening on the right, but I also see some um, similar pathologies that are being normalized on the left. Uh, for instance, just back in March, we saw a transgender individual completely shoot out a Christian school in Nashville. And the left response, instead of talking and raising awareness to the mental health problem that is found in the transgender community, they almost celebrated and elevated um, those standards. And so I think that as a society in America, we're at this very dangerous crossroad in our time in history where we need to pour resources and really look at the problem that's going on in America, and that is we have a serious mental health problem. Here in Texas, as we saw over the weekend with the Allen shooter, but as well in Brownsville, Texas, where a Hispanic individual just crashed his car into migrants waiting at a bus stop, uh, I think it proves to us that there needs to be a, a very serious conversation of where we go from now, right? We can't ban all guns and we definitely can't ban all motor vehicles. But what we can do is discuss a serious problem at hand more than 6.8%, uh, there was a rise of more than 6.8% of Latinos from 2018 to 2021, uh, an increase in mental health disorders such as suicide, uh, anxiety, um, and nervousness. And so I think that we need to figure out where do our priorities lie. I appreciate that. And I'm often one who is calling for restraint on condemning, you know, saying it's because of ideology or words or they're inspired by, you know, some coherent ideology. I think it's very important to bring in the mental health perspective. But in some cases, including so far, it's, you know, it's still early. We hope to know more. This one seems potentially, at least, uh, the, the mall shooting, more tied to a specific um, ideology than just, you know, a, a mentally ill person attaching themselves to whatever ideas they're presented with. I mean, of course, it could be that. You know, I, my, I get the sense from some people who are inclined toward violence or engage in ideologically motivated violence that, you know, they could have joined ISIS. They could have been an eco-terrorist. They could have been a right-wing terrorist. They could have, you know, it, it's it's. Uh, it's unwell people, but that's probably you know that's probably cold comfort to to victims or to people who see this violence in their communities. And in this case, it does seem you know tied specifically to the the far right. So I you know I don't know. And we can also say well we need mental health solutions, but you know what is that actually is that a way of what what does that entail? <laughs> what are we even talking about when we bring that up? 
when we're talking about bringing mental health solutions, it's something particularly in marginalized communities like the Hispanic community, where most Hispanics don't even know what mental health even is. Um, I look at a story of an individual that Axios just posted about an individual in South Texas from Brownsville, the same city that over the weekend saw uh, many migrants completely ran over um, by, a, by a Hispanic driver. Um, and she said that when her, both her parents passed away from cancer, um, her therapist didn't really understand her culture, didn't really figure out, how, they, she couldn't figure out how to support her and how to help her. And it wasn't until she found, uh, after much, much in-depth research, um, a Hispanic individual therapist that could actually walk her through some mental health um, dealings that she was you know, finding. Uh, so I think that there's a, a need for not only just saying we need mental health uh, resources, but figuring out what does that mean for every specific culture um, in America, because we're, you know, we're not a one size fits all, right? We need to identify what key cultures uh, are in this country and what their needs are and putting people that look like them, sound like them, come from the same background, to be able to walk them through, uh, you know, some of the crises that they're dealing with. Uh, particularly, we understand that, you know, 68% of individuals, young individuals that identify um, as LGBTQ say that they suffer from mental health crisis, right? Are we just going to let those individuals be without support or, or the system of support that they need in this country? So the man who brutally killed all these people at this Allen, Texas mall, including almost an entire family, uh, including their uh, one of their children, uh, these two young girls, uh, this tragic event. We don't know anything about his mental health. We do know that he, because of his social media post, was a fan of Tim Pool, a right-wing uh, uh, podcaster. Tim Pool has said in the past, after the Club Q shooting, um, many people perceive this as justifying the shooting, saying we shouldn't tolerate pedophiles grooming kids. Club Q had a grooming event. How do you prevent the violence and stop the grooming, seeming to tacitly endorse that? Um, there have been... Uh, uh, as I mentioned before, social media posts that started, this post was inspired by libs of TikTok, in which the shooter went on to say, um, I had a teacher who used the class to, quote, promote Jewish mud, diversity, hippie, BS. He said the actual word. Um, he went on to say that he did the, he called it the Roman salute, the Nazi salute to her, and she got but hurt as hell, um, and went on to say um, a final solution to her, obviously evoking the uh, Nazi Holocaust, um, and on and on and on. This is someone who very openly had, a, again, a swastika on his chest, another Nazi tattoo on his arm. Why can't there also be a conversation about the influence of white right-wing ideologies and the various accounts, whether they're libs of TikTok or people like Tim Pool, who have been perceived as validating prior instances of violence against marginalized groups toward, they have, toward whom they have directed hate? Why singularly focus on mental health when we, at this point, have no evidence of this person's mental health, but have ample evidence of having embraced certain right-wing, uh, racist, bigoted, anti-Semitic ideologies? I agree with you, Brianna. I think we all should talk about some of the crazy left-leaning uh, you know, right, but media in this context of this shooter, why isn't that there. we have to immediately pivot away and not even spend one second? Do you condemn the kind of language that this shooter has used and the mm. um, the fact that it has been echoed by so many people in the broader right conservative media sphere? It seems to me that if someone adopted an ideology that was anywhere close to what I believed in and said they had done something horrific in my name, the easy choice would just be to say, that's not what I stand for, that's unconscionable. And they should absolutely not follow me if they think that that's what they're getting from me. I'm going to step away from that kind of messaging. Why is the a different choice seem to be made here by people like Tim Pool, who is impugning the 
who is trying to cast doubt on the the reporting that this person followed him rather than making any critique of what the mass murderer actually did. Look, I agree with you in the sense that if someone um, is subscribing to my rhetoric that's going to cause harm like this and quite honestly isn't part of my platform, I'd be the first one to jump out and say that this is not something that I encourage 100%. But I also think that there's a bigger conversation that needs to be had here. Uh, you know, I, I didn't see any kind of condescending tone or any, you know, disbowing of, you know, when churches and pro-life clinics were being completely harassed and attacked by left-wing groups, right? This goes, this goes both ways. Uh, mental health and, uh, you know, racist rhetoric isn't just exclusive to one side of the party. This is found on both sides of the party, right? Uh, and so I think that when we're talking about the social media impact that it has specifically on younger generations, it all ties as well to mental health. Mental health isn't just therapy sessions, right? It's what are you posting on social media? It's a lonely world out there. The social media world is a very lonely world. What kind of rhetoric are we, uh, you know, pushing into millennial and Gen Z future voters um, and people that might oftentimes go out and do things that, you know, are just promoted by, you know, left-wing politics, right-wing politics, whatever it is. At the end of the day, this country lacks moral this, justice. But I don't think this is um, about right-wing politics or left-wing politics. This is about Nazi politics, right? This is a person with a swastika on their, tattoo, on, their, on their body and an SS tattoo on their arm. And there seems like a weird... I'm not a Nazi. I don't think that you're a Nazi. So it seems odd to me that this can't be a conversation where left and right comes together and condemn Nazis. Why is it that so many of these right-leaning people, lives of TikTok, took stochastic terrorists out of their handle after this event? Tim Pool has been on the defensive since this happened. Seems to me that if I weren't a Nazi, I would simply say, I don't like Nazis. This isn't about me. Since, we're, since we brought him up a couple times, as far as I can tell from Twitter, he, Tim Pool himself seems to be taking the position that the the photo of the per alleged perpetrator on a Russian social media site is, is fake. fake. That's, 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 yeah, that's what he's saying. That's so. what, I, what I said. So he's, yeah. in, he's impugning the providence of this photograph um, as opposed to saying, well, I'm not a Nazi, so if this guy thinks I'm a Nazi, that has nothing to do with me, which would seem to me to be the easy way out of this. Why is this being framed as a left and right issue instead of just a round condemnation of Nazism and white supremacy? Look, I am not Tim Pool or Lives of TikTok spokesperson. Um, I would have handled things very differently. Uh, but what I can tell you is that this isn't just exclusive to just right-wing uh, politics or right-wing social media sites. That's exactly what you're saying, Brianna. I kind of go back to what happened in Nashville, and there was no conversation around the actual serious problem um, that was the shooter and the mental health problems that they had, right? And in fact, the left kind of embraced that community and elevated the, the problems who that are found. Who on the left embraced uh, the Nashville community. murderer? So we're going to talk minute, I'm about... Sorry. Who, who on the left embraced the Nashville about, murderer? Uh, who who, who embraced any kind of... What, what is the ideological driver of the Nashville murderer When you're having concerts and, and celebrating that? a community and celebrating rhetoric that left an entire Christian school completely traumatized, I'm sorry, you are embracing bad rhetoric. Wait a minute, I agree I, is, that isn't that analogous? isn't something that we should, we should be completely condemning, but also we should be condemning any bad unjustified uh, act in America, right? Abraham, isn't that analogous to saying that because this shooter in this case was Latino, saying anything positive about Latinos is embracing Latinos? Embracing or having acceptance of trans people is not the same thing as endorsing what one trans person said any more than saying that you embrace 
Latinos is accepting one horrific incident that one Latino happened to perpetrate. So what is the evidence of the left specifically well, with, embracing with that anything that Brianna, would validate that what that horrific murderer did in Tennessee? With that same comparison, you can go back to the Tim Pool and this disgusting, disgraced Nazi sympathizer active shooter, right? I mean, did Tim Pool know exactly that this guy was you know, looking at everything he was doing? Probably not. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's not a good conversation, not a good way to go, that now every single time we post something, we have to be extremely cautious and, and scared that someone's going to act on it. I, I think we need to have a very serious conversation of, yes, what are the social media impact in society, right? But also the fact that we need to figure out as a country, when things are bad, to call it bad and not continue to justify and pour celebratory things behind things that ultimately leave this country in a bad route. Abraham, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. After the tragic chokehold killing of Jordan Neely on the New York City subway, investigative reporter Lee Fong reports, quote, the loudest voices politicizing this tra tragedy are those who attempted to derail vital public services for the severely mentally ill. Uh, Lee Fong joins us now to expand. Welcome back to Rising, Lee. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I thought this was a really good uh, piece you wrote for Substack. Why don't you elaborate on your thesis there for our audience? Look, you know, this is a tragic situation. You know, I, I kind of looked through some of the discourse that's happened in the last week and some of the potential policy responses. You know, Jordan Neely is someone who clearly fell through the cracks, someone who experienced extreme trauma early in life. You know, um, his uh, very kind of traumatic household, his stepfather murdered his mother. You know, as, as he approached adulthood and reached the age of 18, you know, the age that so many Americans are graduating high school, you know, entering college, really blossoming into life, he had to testify at um, the trial uh, for his stepfather um, and, and discuss these kind of gruesome details. And according to family members, it was because of this tragedy that led to a mental health um, spiral, you know, you know, he experienced schizophrenia, uh, addiction, depression, PTSD. Um, you know, he was living on the streets for most of his adult life, as I understand it. And, you know, uh, he, he's been a threat to himself and to others. You know, as the New York Times just reported, um, there were caseworkers who interacted with him uh, in April. So only a month ago who said that he was, again, exhibiting aggressive and violent behavior and he was a threat to himself and others. Um, so, you know, this is a tragedy all around. You know, this is a problem that also, you know, has a lot of uh, resemblance of the issues that are faced where I live in California and San Francisco, that we have thousands of people living on the streets who require much more aggressive intervention from the state in terms of mental health who are being basically left out to suffer um, you know, we, we have similar issues in California where there's almost kind of a, a, a strange coalition of forces of, um, of conservatives who don't believe in spending more government money uh, on mental health programs, um, kind of an austerity approach that we've seen since the 1970s in, in terms of um, psych boards. And we have a certain set of uh, leftists who believe that hospitalization programs, um, you know, involuntary treatment for people who are you know, a threat to themselves and others um, because of addiction and, and, and other mental, severe mental health 
disorders, uh, that any of these programs are a, a form of incarceration. So they lobby and litigate um, against any of these programs. So it's, it's a kind of an odd coalition, but we see it actually in New York City and in San Francisco, where you know we can't get the treatment that is needed for individuals like uh, Jordan Neely. We still don't know the, you know, all the facts about what happened on that subway train. You know, NBC reported that he was threatening passengers, um, that he was acting violent, and there was kind of a um, uh, some kind of confrontation that that led to several passengers restraining him, and you know, one one passenger putting him in a chokehold that led to his death. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's still a lot of facts to be, you know, uh, investigated and, and discussed. But, you know, the, the point of my piece is, is to look at, 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 at the systemic failure here and contrast that with the kind of discussions we've seen in the media. You know, there are a number of far left voices that are, I, you know, I think, frankly, politicizing this, that are um, hypocritically calling themselves abolitionists while demanding um, the police step in and, 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 and charge and, and arrest uh, the passengers uh, who, you know, just last year lobbied against um, expanding programs for hospitalization of the severely mentally ill. So, you know, it's, it's, this is a tough situation. It's interesting, Lee, because I think the frustration that many people on the left have is that there has been a robust movement in quite the opposite direction to address um, issues about violence in the subway, disruptions in the subway, um, concern about people who are homeless and mentally ill, with more funding for social support programs, including programs for the mentally ill. My understanding is that a lot of the objections to Eric Adams' plan had to do with the use of cops, not the deployment of mental health actors, but increased funding to police departments under the under the cover that they were going to be used in a, in a mental health capacity, but that, of course, voluntary committal made more easy is a no-brainer, but that there is also the civil liberty concern about wanting to make sure that involuntary committal doesn't become a workaround for basically continuing to use incarceration as a way to not deal with an underlying mental health concern. And so when that is happening, at the same time that there is also a very right-wing politicization of the issue that refuses to contend with the wisdom of allowing individual citizens to engage in a kind of vigilantism and kill passengers on subways when those passengers in this particular instance had not laid a finger on anyone else in the car feels like a little bit of a misdirection. So I think there is a, a really healthy conversation to be had about what kinds of interventions could actually have helped Neely, who was touched by the system at a lot of different points, who might have just been a person with, whose problems were abnormally extreme and beyond the realm of even what good social services can provide. But also in the case of the, what happened on the subway, Neely, there's been no reporting whatsoever after now a week almost that he laid a finger on anybody. And it does seem to me that there's a lack of conversation or acknowledgement on the right that it might not be the best idea for passengers to put other passengers into a chokehold, especially when they haven't actually engaged in a physical confrontation in that moment. What do you what do you say to that framing? Well, I, I, you know, I think there's a broad agreement that violent vigilante justice is not a good idea for society. I don't think anyone any one of us want that, um, but there is a, a genuine concern about public safety uh, on the New York subway. You know, just since March 2020, we've had something like 27 deaths 
on the New York subway. That's more than I think the combined uh, number of deaths from the previous uh, decade and a half. So clearly the violence problem in uh, New York subways is escalating. The last year, um, there, there were several deaths attributed to severely mentally ill uh, people who have been roaming the subway. Um, Michelle Goh, um, you know, one New York resident who was shoved into the subway by someone who had a very long pattern of um, violent behavior uh, of, of severe mentally, mental illness on, on the subway. Um, and that was, you know, that's a case that garnered international headlines. I mean, this is a question, I, I, this is a question that kind mm-hmm. of, I, I think speaks to the issue again, we have in San Francisco. You know, I, I was very sympathetic to our big tax measure um, from several years ago, Prop C, that ra- radically expanded the amount of money spent and outreach services spent on uh, homeless and, and the severely uh, mentally ill and, and, and addicted. Um, we spend over $100,000 in San Francisco per uh, homeless, um, many of them addicted and, and dealing with these, these mental issues, um, but it, it hasn't worked. You know, um, there, this idea that, we, that from a lot of leftists that, you know, you know we simply can uh, spend money and, and hope that, that, that the problem automatically solves itself just from that um, hasn't really borne itself out from the evidence. Um, and we have in, individuals like Brad Lander, the comptroller of New York City, very much on the left, who's calling this a murder, who's kind of joining yeah. the kind of left-wing chorus here. But then they go to uh, they go to the state capitol, they go to Albany, and they lobby against uh, more money for programs like Eric Adams, which again is, and I, I think you kind of uh, misconstrued it. It's not just police. You know, this this is a program that requires multiple layers of, of approval that that are teams of health workers, mental uh, healthcare workers, um, you know, case workers who work with police. Um, and, and police are often the first responders um, in, in these situations. Well, but Lee, the, 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 I think the fundamental issue is that this is not a case where police were involved at all, despite the increased funding to the police, despite the really heavy police presence on the New York subway. The police never even had an opportunity to get in, involved because this is a case about a passenger killing another passenger. And it's not that there's not a very legitimate conversation to be had about what to do about subway safety, a conversation that, because of incidents like the tragedy of Michelle Goh and her death being pushed into the subway tracks, has been going on now for quite some time. And I don't think we're going to resolve it today. I think part of the consternation is taking a moment that is actually about a homeless person being killed on the subway and making it a conversation about the threat that homeless people present to others. Do you see how well, that look, might I, frustrate I, I mean, folks? No, I, I, th- I, think there, I think there's vast frustration right now about the, the left-wing discourse around these issues, because the same people who called for defunding the police, for abolishing the police, these same city council members, these same activist groups are now demanding a police presence and say, what, you know, what, this is not something we Who's should have to deal with presence? in terms of vigilantes. I mean, how, how do you solve this? If it's not police, who is it going to be? Lee, who specifically... What, what defund the police politicians Tiffany, specifically are calling for a police a greater police presence in the subway? No, they're they're saying that we shouldn't have vigilantes, which, which I think we should all agree with. But then who should resol- who should respond to violent uh, individuals in in the subway who, well, in who this are instance, threatening them? Lee, it's important yeah, I think to they're know. saying no one. Well, but, but <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, like, no, Brianna, but, Brianna, but let's be clearly, police, should it be? But in this instance, what the 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 decedent was not violent. He did not put his hands on anybody. That, no, no, that he, is just he, no, the, no, no, the that, facts of the not, case. That's not clear. That's not clear. Lee, there has NBC been... Has reported there, he was, he, NBC were, has reported that he was threatening individuals right, on the past Right, but he, did not, he was not violent to, with to anybody, Lee. The uh, rule is uh, not... Uh, 
a threat of violence is, is a form of violence. Wait, wait so this is, this, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because now we're getting to brass tacks, and this is what is frustrating to people. There is a pervasive belief that someone shouting and making threats justifies them being choked to death on a subway. No, no, no. No one is no, saying no, that no justifies them being that. choked no to death. We're that's, saying it justifies that's, that's, an intervention to... The well, intervention went too far and should not right, result in death. Right, but that's what we're talking about right now. We're talking about what consequences should come from a, a passenger choking a homeless person to death on the we're subway. We're talking about what, how do we prevent this from happening again? How right? do we like prevent? The, Brianna, exactly. I think, I how do we prevent? To the, the, the how do we prevent here. vigilante passengers right. from choking right. Right. homeless people to death on the subway? By That's not the having homeless Public people safety. on the subway. But not by not having vigilantes who are able to okay. do that and not so Brianna, face legal so consequences. Brianna, we, we can all all agree that we don't want vigilante vigilantes. But you also say you don't want police on on the subway if you're if you're someone like Tiffany Caban. Then what, what's the solution here? Well, I don't, I don't know. If Tiffany Caban says she doesn't want any police on the subway. I don't know that I personally would agree with that position. My understanding is that the frustration has been that there has been an escalation of police in terms of the funding in New York City and their presence on the subway. That I, I would, not, I would, wait a minute, Lee. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me finish the sentence. That is not correlated with a decline in crime rates. That's the fundamental issue. The, the abolitionist view is not that police are a default bad thing. The problem is that we have I, I been throwing money. Wait a minute. You said throwing money at the problem that the issue isn't working. That's exactly what these uh, these police reformists are saying. That throwing money at police departments for decades has not resulted in the decline in crime rates that their expectate that that their people expect there to be. So if we can agree that throwing money at this in one way or the other isn't necessarily solving the fundamental issue, then I think we can have a really substantive conversation. But I think there's a lot of accusations that are happening on both sides that are obscuring, one, the fundamental tragedy here in this case that we're talking about with Jordan Neely is that a homeless man was killed on a subway. I think there's a, a, a time and a place to have a conversation about horrible things like what happened to Michelle Goh and other people who ha that even Neely did to other people on the subway at other instances. But those are simply not the facts of the case here now. No? No. Last month, in April, police questioned Jordan Neely. He had an active warrant, but they didn't even know about the warrant. The caseworker talked to him, and, in the, and this is according to the New York Times, that, and, the, and according to the caseworker's notes, Neely at the time, just weeks ago, was a threat to himself and to others. You know, he has multiple arrests for punching elderly, you know, citizens on the subway, for abducting a child. You know, I think you're minimizing the, the very genuine public safety concerns on well, the no, subway. Well, no, not at all. No, no, I'm no, happy no, to no, talk Brianna, about Brianna, those. Brianna, but when are you going to talk about Brianna, the fact Brianna, that Brianna, he was killed Brianna, on a subway Brianna, after he he touched zero people? I think you know all the facts of what happened on that subway. Uh, you know, this is a clear class divide. You know, New York One uh, conducted a poll last year. Um, the highest support for more deploying more police on the subway came from people earning less than 50,000. Uh, the highest level of support among racial groups for deploying more police on the subway came from African-Americans. That's more than whites or Asians. You know, we don't hear these voices. We instead hear uh, voices of uh, elite politicians and, and folks who are at activist groups founded by billion dollar foundations that say, no, you know what? We, we, we're not gonna propose an actual solution. We're gonna politicize this death. We're gonna say, let's have no police. Let's have no prisons. Please. Like, <laughs> who specifically, anyone? can you name a name of someone who specifically says we should have no police on the subway? Yeah, Tiffany Caban. 
Okay. I, I, I don't know that that's the, the broader argument. The argument has been someone who actually said it was right to kill him and the person should Dozens do and dozens of people, name a right-wing commentator, they all said that this is what he deserved. I don't no, want to, I don't want to misquote no, people didn't. out of, I could, if I, I know that <laughs> if you pause the tape and give me an opportunity to Google what Tim Pool said, what, what Ben Shapiro said, what all of those people I'm said. Sure things you didn't agree with, but. No, no, no. You, you guys, we, this? when Michelle go, when these people are killed, council? I'm sorry? member of the New York City Council or any New York politician justify this, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, and say that this was, you know, we should have more vigilante justice. I don't, I don't think so. This is a red Absolutely. herring. I'm sure you can find some internet extremists. But, Lee, but Lee, lo like logically. And if they did, I disagree with them. I, wait a minute. I mean, logically <laughs> speaking, Lee, we are here today to talk about the death of Jordan Neely. Other people, when they're killed and hurt and injured, when, when even Jordan Neely punched people on the subway weeks ago, months ago, years ago, whenever it happened during those incidents, that was a good time to talk about what to do about Jordan Neely attacking other people. But it, it does strike me as very interesting that in the moment where people are protesting because the man who killed Jordan Neely has no charges against him, and we suspect will have no charges, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of investigation, and after the press has done a great deal of newsworthy investigation about uh, his past, we know absolutely nothing about Penny, the man who killed Jordan Neely, that there is an asymmetry there that is causing people to be frustrated. I personally do not disagree with the fact that there is a lack of real-world solution to what to do about what is a sincere safety problem on our public institutions, and in our, in our subways, and our streets, et cetera. It is true what you were saying that simply throwing money at social programs, although I think that much less money has been thrown at social programs than the police, does not prevent someone like Neely having the outcome like he, that he did. That is obviously true. The social system touched him in many ways, and we still had a terrible outcome. It is also true that escalating police budgets have not lined up with lower crime rates. Can you acknowledge that as well, Lee? No, because, okay, we, that's, a, that's worth a separate discussion because there's a very disingenuous discussion around police budgets, most of which goes to pensions, right? Like we need, I mean, much of it, not most, much of it goes to pensions. What we do know from, you know, decades of research is that active duty, visible police presences in, you know, on, on the streets and in subways do reduce crime, but simply spending more money on, you know, retirement benefits for pop cops clearly doesn't. Uh, over right. Kathy Hochul and Eric Adams uh, in October pledged 1,200 overtime shifts by New York uh, NYPD officers to supplement the nearly 2,600 cops already assigned to the system. Maybe we will get another 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 cops in the subway. Look, we, we, no, it's not. It's not just that. It's about policy. You know, when cops were inter were, dis were were interacting with Neely last month when he was acting you know, in a way that was violent towards others and to himself, they could have taken him to rehab and gotten him this help he needed. We could have avoided this. That's the simple I think that's a fair answer. That I think that's a fair criticism, Lee, but that's a criticism of the they? police department. You know, your, yes. your article, yeah, well, I, that's a criticism of, poli of the, poli of the choices that are being made by the police department. The police yes, I just want to say that Lee, our system failed. I think that's completely fair, but Lee, the choice to, I gotta say, put the blame at the feet of leftists who have been advocating for those kinds of interventions, mental health interventions, all of this time. The cops should not even be interacting with them. They don't think the cops should even be there in the subway. 
I, I think taking a maximalist view, and I, I have declined to do this. You, you're, I'm being faulted for not being able to cherry pick all of the worst right wing statements that have been made about this, because I don't think that's particularly productive. And I also don't think it's productive to cherry pick the most extremist left, you know, random internet it, person's statement about how there should not have the police should not have administered care to. I'm sorry? Talk about the city council who are racializing this. We don't know all the facts. They're saying this is an example of a white man killing a black man. This is a racialized yeah, lynching. I, I, I They're using that, rhetoric. I think those kind of statements are premature. But the, the, the goalposts are moving a little bit here, Lee. It's pretty I, clear what they're doing. I, I agree that some of those statements are premature. We don't really know what was motivating Penny. I do think that there is a broader culture where, I'm sorry, Black Lives Matter is a slogan for a reason. I think that the optics of this, the choice to who, who can to be strained and manhandled in those kinds of ways is very different according to race. We've seen 13-year-old black girls in high schools get body slammed by corrections officers and stuff for misbehaving in, in classrooms. I mean, I think that you can make that conversation, but I do think it's not necessarily constructive in this moment and especially in the hours and days after this incident has happened. Well, we got we to gotta leave uh, all, it there. All, so. I'm, all I'm trying to I, do— I, is clarify that this is a nuanced situation. I think, and and I think that pulling out bad actors on either side to make them representative of the broader concerns that are being expressed by various communities isn't necessarily. No, I, I mean, constructive. I'm talking about a, a big division within the Democratic Party, within the left. There are many responsible voices on the left that are trying to do the right thing, that try to help people who severely are are severely mentally ill and need the support. Um, but there are some voices on the on the left that are clearly pouring gasoline on a fire that are politicizing this and who lobbied against the kind of intervention that Jordan Neely needed. Are there uh, advocates on the right who you think have been doing a good job advocating for the mental health care and support that would have prevented the situation? You know, I, I don't think they have a, a, a voice in, in cities like San Francisco and New York. Where, where is, does the right have power in these cities that have these kind of severe problems? And again, if there's anyone on the right who's been, you know, celebrating or rewarding or saying it was great that a homeless person got killed, that's really disgusting. I haven't personally seen a lot of that, but maybe it just wasn't filtered into my feed. I mean, feed. look at San Francisco. Every um, single city council member is a Democrat. The mayor is a Democrat. Where's Bobby, the right? Yesterday, you pointed to the fact that he had jumped turnstiles as evidence of how these things happen when you when people are criminals, like when you jump a turnstile. And I know that you're going to say that doesn't mean I believe that he should have been killed. But when you bring up somebody's you misdemeanor, correctly. when you bring up some past action like that in the context of trying to have a conversation about why somebody was killed. It, of course, is being leveraged as a justification for why we should feel less bad about what happened to them. And I'm not saying you intend it that way, but that is, that is what is happening. I don't think we should feel less bad about it. We, we should just take steps to avoid it happening in the future, and that it should involve and do any people of those having steps? psychotic outbursts and, and on the subway. In 20 minutes of this conversation, are any of those steps going to involve any accountability for the man who choked Neely to death? I guess we'll find out. No, it's the, 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 the segment is wrapped and none, zero, zero minutes of the conversation have been about any accountability or anything that should be changed to the behavior of the man who actively choked. Well, what do you mean? Don't, yes, he should not have choked someone to death. Well, what, part, what, what, is, what more do you want me to say? This is why people are protesting, because they feel as though if there were people expected criminal penalties for killing other, uh, other uh, subway riders, that potentially they wouldn't engage in this kind of vigilantism. But if there are no charges, the implication is that people will feel entitled to take these kinds of actions going forward. Is that a concern for anybody involved? Yes, that's a legitimate concern.
Yeah, I mean, we don't want more people choking people to death on the subway, so yeah. I'm not calling I, for that. Lee's not yeah, calling I, for that, and we're saying yeah, let's I, have a have a have uh, mental health professionals, and then if it has to be forcible, probably police have to be involved because probably mental health officials like random passengers on the subway are not well equipped to to uh, to forcibly commit someone having a psychotic episode into mental health resources, right? That is actually going to take the involvement of the police. Well, I appreciate yeah, I, that I, acknowledgement. I, 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 Go ahead. A, I think a lot of attention to this kind of neoliberal libertarian streak on the left, funded again by like billionaires and very wealthy foundations like Ford, Carnegie and Soros that, that say, hey, look, you know, without actually proposing any solution for public safety, any solution uh, for the severely mentally ill, let's just get rid of all policing. Let's cut these budgets. Let's stigmatize policing. Every time that we have one of these crises, you know, let's racialize it uh, without knowing all the facts. I think that's just incredibly reckless. You know, that's not a, a, a serious solution to, to our more systemic Yeah, problem. I agree. And I don't think any serious abolitionists, maybe these neo, neoliberals who are trying to exploit kind of abolitionist sentiment, but I don't think any serious abolition, abolitionists think that you should just get rid of the police tomorrow and not accommodate that's the fact that so much crime is happening. I'm sorry. Well, I, I don't want to spend more money. I don't want to throw more money at police to, you know, buy more like SWAT team gear or, you know, conduct more no-knock raids or, or just like enlarge the pensions of the most senior police officers, like that kind of thing. We need, but we need, we need good police. We need to attract people to the profession who are, and then train them well to diffuse uh, dangerous, difficult situations. And obviously, we've all seen videos of that failing any number of times and it you know deserves all the criticism and accountability for police officers who do a really bad job absolutely you know i support all of that i'm not i, I don't think yeah, i've shied you know, away you know, from being critical of police when they when they deserve it which is frequently but i i i appreciate all the time you guys are devoting to this segment i wish we could also get into just kind of the more nuanced discussion of policing that this quote-unquote abolitionist rhetoric totally kind of demolishes you know you look at cities like richmond Newark, counties like Prince George's County, uh, where increased uh, training and money to, to police departments for the types of policing, the kind of community policing, the interactions and, you know, trust building exercises uh, that can intervene in the, in the lives of young men and, and, and create a better relationship with policing that reduces cases of police brutality, that reduces violence in society. It's a win-win. Um, but rather, you know, we, ha we have a lot of these extreme left voices that then take the total amount that a budget goes to policing, including pensions, and, you know, without actually looking at the, you know, we have thousands of different police departments around the country. Some do a very good job, some do a very bad job, and we have to actually analyze it with a, you know, with an attention to detail and, and, and actual police practices. Taking this kind of big picture number and, and extrapolating from it, I think does no one any service. All right, well, we did have a long discussion about that. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. More Rising right after this. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Twitter CEO 
CEO Elon Musk said yesterday that the platform would be purging accounts on the site that had been inactive for a number of years, The Hill reports. Musk tweeted, we're purging accounts that have had no activity at all for several years, so you will probably see follower counts drop. According to The Hill, it is unclear if the policy will affect the account of former President Donald Trump, whose last tweet was on January 8th, 2021. My follower account hasn't dropped yet. No, but yours? Not, not that I've noticed. Um, I have seen a lot of folks say that it's not that they're concerned about their follower count dropping. They are concerned about the accounts of folks who have passed away being taken down. There are... It's a, mm -hmm. It preserves this sort of memorial function for folks who can go back and see the last tweets that their parent or loved one or friend were tweeting before they passed away. And it, it does seem like to be an interesting choice with not a ton of downsides. I'm not saying that it's the worst thing that's ever happened to Twitter to do this, but a weird, another bad media cycle for, for Elon Musk and without well, clear upside. Right. It's not like there's a finite number of accounts. Letters, uh, <laughs> combinations of um, numbers, and exactly. I mean, maybe some people want access to, you know, if you're George Smith 423, you want to be George Smith numero uno. Sure. Um, so I, I don't really have any opposition to it. I, I take your point. There's something about losing the historical record, I guess, of, of old uh, tweets um, I mean, it's not like they're, it's particularly easy to search Twitter. It's easier to search Twitter than it is other social media sites, but it's, it's not. I mean, if they're really viral, they're around. I mean, what, I but what is, is the point? I mean, so there was a story a while back about, um, I think it was Elon pressuring an account that was just E to take their, um, their Twitter account. There, there have been bargainings, bargaining yeah, look, look, that if you're sitting Again, if you're sitting on some really prime real estate, I can understand, uh, and you're not using it, I can understand... The company. Oh, Robbie, you're Mr. Anti-Eminent well, Domain. Well, it's not It's, it's not just it's, squatting. It's, 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 it's your account. It. It's, yeah, but you don't own it. You didn't pay for it. Well, maybe you did. Maybe well, if you paid for it, then it's a contract, their, and you probably shouldn't lose it. So, so wait. This, we're talking about a site where Elon Musk has made a lot of how egalitarian it's supposed to be now that everybody can pay for a blue check, and it's no longer based on an identification principle. It's now based on just if you want to give right. him $8. But now we're going to say that it's appropriate for him to make decisions that are ostensibly in his financial best interest, boot you off of your account if he, he perceives that he has more value in it than you do, or some other high-value buyer is willing to. I don't think pay anyone to, would have seen get, this get, as necessarily controversial, I mean, except that it's on. Elon Musk. Yeah, but it's but it's Elon Musk who made it controversial by setting himself up as the person who was doing everything on the basis of free speech and equity. If you are then going to turn around and not actually uphold the values of free speech and equity, if you're going to go ahead and go, turn around and ban reporters who are covering a story that you find is invitation to you, well, that's something else. You, that's I've complained about. If you're about going that. to uh, follow your own personal peccadilloes about who gets to be let back onto the site and who is going to be banned on the site, as we saw with Elon Musk and Alex Jones and Donald Trump. That's all fine, but if is you're, this, this if you're is going not a... to say that we're going to have a panel of people to evaluate the decision to let Donald Trump back on the site and then leave it up to a Twitter poll, Elon Musk is responsible. You have to say acknowledge that he's responsible for setting the expectations of how he is going to run the site. Something I thought was interesting and revealed a little bit too much the other day was responding. He was responding to a Matt Iglesias tweet. Matt Iglesias had said. Um, I used to see a lot of tweets from like left-wing activists that really annoyed mm -hmm. me, and 
now I see a lot of tweets from right-wing activists that really annoy me, and I, this will probably be a negative for the Republican Party because it's going to just remind me why I hate the right, whereas I used to spend a lot of time punching left mm -hmm. because I see their content and it's annoying, which I totally understand as someone who also finds a lot of left-wing people very annoying and also some right-wing people annoying. But Elon Musk responded to it and said, uh, well, the goal is for you to be seeing both, like, equally. I'm thinking, is that really the goal? The goal should be for users to see more of the content they value and want to engage with. Not to, right. not to flood people right. with stuff. Like, even from a business standpoint, is flooding people with content that annoys them a good way to build a sustainable site where people want to tune back in? Maybe there's a thinking that that is. I think it's totally incorrect. Like, I'm, enga I'm engaging with Twitter much less because I see fewer tweets that are relevant to my interests that I actually wanted to follow. I'm, I, it's less likely that the people I really want to be updated on what their thoughts are are appearing in my feed. So I'm just not active very, very much. Yeah, so I the, the goal is not to balance his goal should not be to balance the craziness with more craziness from the other direction. But to get now, if you want crazy, empower people to ch make that choice for themselves. That you know they can follow whoever they want. They can get reinforced. That's fine. I'm not saying that he should be like directing the conversation one way or the other. But that the average user wants more extreme, edgy, obnoxious BS mm -hmm. from the other side. They were getting too much of it from one side. They were getting too much of it from one side because they just want content that they enjoy, that is productive right. and so useful you can and has social value. A world in which, I mean, it, it almost feels as though Elon Musk is frustrated that in this particular cultural context that is Twitter, the milieu that is Twitter, not everywhere in the world, but on Twitter, the user base perhaps skewed liberal, skewed, skewed mm -hmm. liberal because it's populated by journalists, that elite media institutions, whatever you want to say. And as a consequence, he's decided to put his thumb on the scale to make sure that the quote-unquote other side has 50-50% of the share. I, I want people to do the thought experiment if there were, were a outlet, a platform that happened to skew conservative. If the CEO of it said, oh, we need to do more right. Jill Stein videos because there's not enough left content on this website. If the owner of Rumble or what right. have you, Parler said, oh, gosh, we got to make sure it's 50-50 right down the middle. Every time I see a start. Matt Walsh tweet after that should be like the Krasenstein brothers or something. <laughs> Please no. <laughs> right. So it, it, is, it was a really interesting. I want to see less of them and less of Matt Walsh, really to be frank. Mission. And also, it is not just that it's, I'm not seeing more conservative content. I'm seeing more um, conflict, generally speaking. So I've had to block and mute a number of accounts that are just fight accounts, which are some kind of street fights, uh, altercations between retail workers and customers, oh. um, people in parking lots upset about things. Often they're violent. There's often a lot of cursing and expletives and racial insults thrown back and forth. And I've talked to a number of friends who've also said that they've observed that those kinds of videos are all over their accounts too. And what it feels like I is an effort to get any of that you whatsoever. to be really mad at other people. And it follows a trend that has been well documented on YouTube, where the YouTube algorithm is directing you to more um, controversial content because that's what will get you angry and keep you clicking. Not even necessarily that you like that content, but the idea that you would watch a video that would 
um, provoke a reaction is more likely to keep you on the website than a video that you know makes you feel happy and peaceful and goes about your way. And I do wonder if a little bit of that is happening as well. These are not accounts that I follow. I keep blocking them because I don't want to see them in my feed and they just keep percolating. Yeah, I haven't seen anything even near that experience. Uh, what I am seeing is less of people. Remember people you, you know, people you follow used to have long threads of arguing, long chains of tweets and replies and quote tweets, and then other people would come in. I don't see any of that anymore because people are just not using the site the, the way they used to. It used to facilitate conversation and debate among people in the field of ideas in media, entertainment, politics, and it just doesn't really accomplish that anymore. So people don't yeah, do it, I mean, and I think that's a great loss. I, I, I would work see, on fixing that if I was going to put my attitude towards something. There was a really popular debate that was going on between Jamil Bowie, I think, at the New York Times, and um, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's a kind of uh, ideologically... We used to be what we call the ideological dark web. I don't know what we're calling it now, but kind of an independent um, journalist about the uh, subway killing situation with Jordan Neal. And that was a refreshing, I think, departure from the trend that I think that you've rightly observed. Me personally, I used to do that a lot. I don't anymore because I've... Uh, I've been I've been shadow banned since April of 2021. Yeah, maybe that's it. Nobody yeah. sees the tweet, so why would I write a whole essay on Twitter when I could just write it in the real world and you know get paid for it? I mostly just tweet things I think are funny. Sometimes highlights from our comments on our videos. Not that we're reading them. <laughs> More rising right after this. President Biden is set to meet with congressional leaders later today to talk about the debt limit and what is likely to shape their showdown over the federal debt and spending in the weeks before the country is set to default on its obligations for the first time in history. The Hill's congressional reporter, Mike Lillis, is here with us to break it all down. Mike, what can we expect? Well, that's the million-dollar question, right? I mean, this has been a months-long kind of stalemate. Nobody is moving. Both sides are very much dug in. Um, and going into the talks, they say uh, that they're not going to give an inch. Of course, that's uh, that's no way to get a compromise, and both sides are going to have to give somewhere. So that's uh, that's kind of the question uh, that everyone's going to be asking today. Who's going to blink first? And, of course, for the Republicans, it has been a victory just to get uh, Biden to agree to a meeting. The last time he and uh, the Speaker met was in the first week of February. So we're going on over three months that the two have uh, have even sat down to discuss this. And Biden going in has made very clear that, hey, just because I'm going to sit down doesn't mean that I'm going to negotiate over the debt ceiling. So again, he's dug in, McCarthy's dug in, uh, and we just have to see who's going to give a little bit of ground and who's going to do it first. Um, and in, you know, kind of in many ways, they're talking you know, over each other, they're talking past each other, because Biden has made clear that he will negotiate on deficit reduction, which is the demand that Republicans and McCarthy are making, but he's not going to do it in the context of the debt ceiling. Uh, he calls that hostage taking. This is money that has already been approved by Congress. It has nothing to do with future outlays. And so therefore he's trying to divorce those two issues. Uh, it, of course, you know, with the, the threat of default lingering over this entire, uh, this entire debate. So um, a lot of this is uh, is new, very nuanced, and a, and a lot of the debate 
is, is complicated for us to cover uh, and it's complicated for them to negotiate because uh, because there are two different deadlines here. The debt limit is going to, uh, we could hit the debt limit by, uh, by the 1st of June. That's what Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, warned us last week, warned McCarthy last week. So there is an urgency for the debt limit in a way that there's not an urgency for government spending. Uh, which expires on October 1st. So uh, a lot of the complication here is just the staggered deadlines uh, and therefore one of the one of the proposed solutions would be to align those two deadlines so that they could discuss both things kind of simultaneously uh, and both of them could could go, walk away claiming a victory. Mike, Mike, what specifically are Republicans asking that Democrats cut right now? I know that as a part of the uh, bill that the House managed to pass, there was an emphasis on cutting social programs. I spoke to Marjorie Taylor Greene on the show a little over a week ago, and she uh, disagreed with the prospect of cutting military spending or other kinds of spending that even Republicans have agreed, populist Republicans have agreed, is going a bridge too far. What are the trade-offs Republicans are asking of the American people at, at this moment? Uh, that's a great question. And you mentioned the bill that they passed in the House, and, and that is kind of their starting point. That's their wish list for the cuts that they would like Biden to agree to. Of course, that's never going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen in the Senate, which is also controlled by Democrats. So, you know, that's their opening bid. And what they threw in there was kind of a wish list of conservative, uh, you know, policies that they've been fighting for for an awfully long time. It's not only, you know, cuts to a lot of the green energy and climate and healthcare, social spending programs that you mentioned, the safety net programs. Uh, but it, it's also the HR1, their big um, their big oil drilling bill that they had passed earlier in the year, House Republicans. So a, a lot of stuff in there. It's it's like a grab bag of uh, of conservative uh, you know priorities. And now the question is going to be which of those can uh, can Democrats agree to? And you know it it almost reminds me a little bit of you go back to 2013 when there was a fight over um, this was not a, a default. Uh, fight that they had. It was over government spending. Um, but there was there was a 16-day shutdown in 2013, and it was because uh, Republicans that controlled the House at the time uh, were demanding that President Obama repeal Obamacare. Now, that, of course, was never going to happen. It was it was his, you know, his greatest domestic achievement. And in many ways, you know, Biden's greatest domestic achievement so far has been this big climate bill uh, that he passed last year. So uh, for Republicans to go asking Biden to uh, repeal his greatest domestic achievement is not going to happen. So it reminds us a little bit of that. Uh, the question is, what is Biden going to give? As you mentioned, you can't cut trillions of dollars uh, you know, at some point you're going to have to start talking about entitlements. Uh, if you're going to balance the budget, you got to start talking about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, you're going to have to talk about Pentagon spending. Otherwise, you're just going to slash, you know, a, a huge bulk of the uh, the domestic discretionary um, budget. And as we saw, even uh, when the bill passed the House last uh, last month. There are those a lot of those programs are popular even in uh, in some of these Republican districts. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that's what you saw with the Iowa delegation who said, well, hey, wait a minute. Some of these green energy subsidies help our district, the ethanol stuff. So they went back and, and they had to put that back in. But Mike, to um, be clear, n nobody has to cut anything. And would you agree with the characterization, characterization of some that this is a manufactured crisis that the government has raised the debt limit, what, 78 times since 1960, and that it could simply do this again without cutting benefits for seniors or for the poor, Medicaid, Social Security, these so-called entitlements? Sure. Oh, it's ent entirely manufactured. And 
Uh, and the reason the, the, the proof is that uh, the only time this debate comes up is when you have a Republican controlled uh, Congress, in, in this case, just the House uh, and a Democrat in the White House. And, you know, you can you can understand their logic. If you're a House Republican, the only leverage you have right now um, is to is to threaten something like a shutdown or a default. And you're going to use that leverage uh, as best as you can. Um, yeah, a lot of people say that, that that's responsible, irresponsible, irresponsible because of, you know, the effect on Wall Street, et cetera, uh, the global economy in this case. But Well, if that's, if that's uh, the case and the posture of this is different from the 2013 shutdown that you described, where this is actually America defaulting, which would have these global financial implications, and if this really is a hostage situation, why isn't that framing more clear? Because it does seem to me that if we're waiting for someone to— to, to call the bluff in this game of chicken, that the consequences for Republicans of being the cause of that kind of global financial cataclysm are much higher than for Democrats who are simply saying, I don't want to cut Social Security. I want to just keep funding the, the budget. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a very difficult uh, story to tell, and it's a very di difficult bait to cover for that reason, because, you know, the debt ceiling is a very obscure thing. It's over 100 years old. As you said, it's been raised scores and scores of times. Uh, usually it was just a routine thing. I think Reagan raised it, you know, 18 times or something like that without, uh, without a fight. Uh, but because the debt has grown at such a clip over the last few decades, uh, we're now at $31.5 trillion dollars. Um, and because, you know, kind of since the Tea Party came around in 08, 09, 010, um, it's just been uh, it, it, it has been an issue that resonates with their base. And so there's a reason for them to fight for it tooth and nail the way that they have. Um, and also there's a very real concern that um, that if the debt keeps growing, then the only thing that federal outlays are going to go to is interest on the debt. And, you know, there is a very real concern uh, there as well. But. Uh, the Democrats would argue that the context in which to argue about future spending and cutting the deficit is not uh, in the debt ceiling debate where, again, we're talking about funding that is already out the door, that Congress has already approved it. If they didn't want to approve it, they didn't have to, uh, you know, last year or a decade ago or two decades ago when all this spending was approved. So uh, the context here is going to be very important. And but again, it's just a very difficult uh, issue to explain outside of the Beltway. Uh, you know, even those of us who have been covering this for a couple decades now, uh, it, it's just difficult to wrap our heads around it. And so you can imagine people outside of the Beltway uh, who, you know, have better things to worry about, obviously, than, than the debt ceiling. Uh, it's just it's just it's just hard to explain. Kevin McCarthy, of course, owes his speakership to, you know, begrudging belated support from Matt Gates and other uh, Republicans, you know, who finally gave in based on concessions they had forced him to say he would do. So, you know, is this a case where where the speaker you know, has to deliver on promises he made to representatives who represent some constituents, and he's thinking about that that political cost of letting those people down, you know, rather than I don't know the you know the median voter somewhere in some other district. Yeah, and that's a great question. And that you know the the move to vacate the chair is what we call it up here, and that means. Uh, under a rule change that the House approved earlier in the year as a condition of, of McCarthy winning the speakership, uh, any single lawmaker can bring a motion to vacate the chair. Um, so in that sense, his, his position is very precarious, and he has a lot of conservatives who expect him to hold this line. In other words, if any bill comes back to the House that's not as 
um, you know, severe in in its cutting as what the House already passed. You're going to get a lot of uh, Republicans to vote against it. And then the question is going to be, would any of those Republicans be so disappointed in McCarthy if he brought it to the floor that they would bring a, a, a motion to vacate? Um, for that reason, you know, a lot of people think that McCarthy, the, the deal that is going to ultimately be cut will not be cut between McCarthy uh, and and Biden just because of the, the place that McCarthy is in. He's really walking a, a tough line here. And that Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader who has decades of experience with Joe Biden, they served uh, for a long time in the Senate together. And then if you remember when uh, Biden was vice president under Obama, it was frequently Biden who would come up to the White House and negotiate both debt ceiling uh, and government funding um, with Mitch McConnell. It was not Obama who would come up and cut those deals. It was always Biden. So there's a history there. McConnell has taken himself uh, out of the talks for now because he's in the minority and uh, and he wants uh, McCarthy. He, he understands the position McCarthy's in. He also understands that uh, that McCarthy has the power in this in this spot. So um, he is on the sidelines, but nobody expects him to stay there. If there a, a deal is going to be made, it's going to have to involve Mitch McConnell, um, both because of his you know experience doing that, but also because you're going to need ten Republican votes in the Senate, and you're not going to get those without Mitch McConnell. So at some point, McConnell's going to have to pop off the sidelines. We just don't know when that's going to happen. Is that going to happen in today? His meeting is that going to happen uh, in the coming weeks? Um, that's kind of a big question that we're looking uh, to answer today. Um, but I, I, if I could just mention one other thing about the motion to vacate. Um, you know, we've been up here saying, "Oh, you know, McCarthy is really in trouble if he brings this bill to the floor. He's going to have a motion to vacate." But a motion to vacate means you need 218 votes to knock a speaker out. And if McCarthy were to bring a bill to the floor that had Biden's support, Chuck Schumer's support, then it would surely have uh, Hakeem Jeffries' support, the House Democratic leader, and, you know, maybe not unanimous support from House Democrats. I'm sure some, some liberals would vote against it to protest some of the cuts that might be in there. But you're going to have a vast majority of House Democrats voting for that bill, mm -hmm. um, in effect, siding with Kevin McCarthy for bringing it on the floor. So th if there were a, vo a motion to vacate, the question would be, would House Democrats actually want to take down McCarthy for being what the Democrats would consider reasonable in this case by bringing a bill to the floor that would prevent a default um, and the answer is, is probably no. There, there was a motion to vacate uh, in 2015, as you remember. Mark Meadows brought that up against then-Speaker John Boehner. Um, Nancy Pelosi at the time was, was very quiet, but in later years she said Democrats were never going to support that motion to vacate because we thought that Boehner was reasonable uh, and we would rather have him in the speakership than, than yeah. somebody uh, you know, in the Freedom Caucus yeah. or somebody much more conservative who would have no interest in negotiating. So that's a question for House Democrats, for Hakeem Jeffries, but, uh, and you can expect them to kind of remain quiet about it just so they can let the Republicans hang out there and have their you know, internal fight if that were to happen. But uh, I would be surprised if a bunch of uh, Demo if you know, 213 Democrats would vote to take out Kevin McCarthy for bringing a bill to the floor that, uh, that saved the global economy. Mm. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely had to talk about this video. It's all anybody's talking about on Twitter right now. The FBI has released a video that's advising people as to how to survive mass shootings. Many people are taking this as an indictment of how low things have fallen in the United States with respect to our gun problem. Let's take a look. Make a plan to defend yourself. 
shooting, if you're prepared. So that was a short clip of a four and a half minute video that's filmed in a very cinematic way that's frankly very suspenseful and sort of scary, frankly. And the clear message is that you have three options. You run, you hide, or you fight. We just saw the end of the fight section of the video. The earlier two sections give advice about how to best survive by running or hiding. Folks are saying that this is, seems to be an admission that the responsibility for surviving these kind of crises is now on the individual as opposed to any kind of systemic change. What do you make of that take? I don't know if that's a particularly fair criticism. I, I think this video deserves plenty of criticism. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't pre present a very realistic situation. Yeah. Um, in, in these kinds of shootings, right, there, there's people everywhere. Mm -hmm. there's, there's crowds trying to get away. You, there's there, not there the time was, to like... more of a fray earlier in the okay, video. I, I don't know how, how often it is that there's like enough downtime for civilians to like make a plan and then execute it. Mm -hmm. um, look, if somebody's armed, they, they should shoot at the shooter, um, confront the shooter is generally good advice, you know, rushing the shooter. That's hard for civilians to do, especially if you're not armed. It's to run toward the sound of gunfire. It violates, like, your natural human instinct. Beyond this, I would say, and I, I don't know, people would, might disagree with me here, but um, I, I don't, I'm not sure that the average American needs, to, look, Mass shootings are very sad, and, they're ha and it seems like they're happening a lot because we're giving them a lot of media coverage. Gun violence overall, very common in this country relative to other countries. But let's be, we have to be very careful here. Mass shootings are not so overwhelmingly common. They're a small, 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 small sliver of overall shootings. It's not like you need to be, we're almost covering it like this is an eventuality you need to be prepared for. It is not so common that it is reasonable to expect someone to be prepared for it. And, and where this really has a policy component is some schools do mass shooter drills. And look, if you want to give kids very general advice about you know, what to do if there's a stranger in the building or et cetera, fine. But some of these training drills are themselves deeply traumatizing. In particular, I've seen cases, this is totally insane, where they don't tell the kids it's gonna, it's a drill, they don't prepare anyone, and it is, it is hor so horrifying, it's as horrifying as actually going through the thing. Again, you're not, these are not so common that it's extraordinarily likely that you well, actually have to do it. let's take that point for a second. Steel manning it, how common is it that there's a tornado that hits a school, or even that there's a fire in a school? So completely, impossibly, vanishingly rare, there is no reason they have to do those either. Okay, so, I mean, not <laughs> to, to be, say... I to mean, be honest. So sure, there's an argument that kids shouldn't do any I think they're required by ever, law, that's why they do them. But that's, I mean, that's the thing. At a certain point, if there is a public policy 
decision made that says, as rare as a fire is, we've had at least one or two or however many horrific yeah. incidences that it's worth, you know, we, it's worth having people be prepared. There certainly have been more than one or two or three horrific instances of school shootings, as rare as they are, such that now that there's a market for things like bulletproof backpacks that parents want to avail themselves of because that's there's an, either that a perceived really risk or a real scary. risk. It's a perceived... Uh, again, for the, for the school mass shootings, the statistics here are going to be so slight that it's in the ballpark of the fire so or the tornado. So you think that the FBI is promoting a culture of fear that is out of step with the real risk that exists in society yes. by putting a video but like I'm not And I'm not trying to underplay risk of gun death that is a s significant thing, but not in the kind of instance that they lay. It's not in, in the scenario they lay out there. We're making that seem more common than it. I just saw this on Twitter. Like... Um, this is from uh, uh, Matt Iglesias retweeted this. This is from Benjamin Ryan, who's a New York Times health and science reporter. Chicago has been so gripped by violence that in a new study, by age 40, half of all residents had witnessed a shooting. Well, that seems to be, to be a kind of a strong argument yeah. for this video. But, this they, video but not that kind but of shooting. Minute. This video isn't just about if, if this particular scenario. If you're in a bar and you are on a date as the protagonist in this video are, or the other protagonist is mm -hmm. one of the, the, the servers in the video, then this is what you do. I mean, it's, it contains more generalizable advice about how to look for exits, whether to go downstairs versus upstairs, what happens if the shooter is blocking the exits, then you move into hide mode. If you're hiding, then you move into fight mode if you can get a couple of people together in a plan. that scenario is just not if characteristic. You can if you can find a room to barricade yourself and to arm yourself in case the barricades fall. I mean, that is advice that could apply to a lot of different kinds of shooting scenarios, including if you're in a neighborhood and there are buildings you could run into, et cetera, egress, egress, ingress. Like, I, I could see this being broadly applicable. I guess I think the question that people are asking is, given your, I think, very good point about how relatively rare these things are, but how much political attention is being put on these things, is this the FBI saying, I'm just going to do make work to make it seem like I'm doing something? And if they're going to do some kind of something to address the issue, why isn't it something more substantive than putting out a video? Yeah, I mean, we give... And by we, I'm, now I'm talking like I'm indicting the broader kind of media market gives mass shootings an incredible amount of, of attention relative to the far more common one-off gun deaths, which are, which are also tragic. Yeah. I think it's about the randomness. I mean, this came up yeah. in our conversation about the, um, the subway killing in New York, and you, you were evoking the how, how it feels like someone who you know is making randomly punching people on the subway feels more mm -hmm. you know dangerous or something it feels something like, like it requires more of a response than someone who's getting in a bar fight and i think that 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 instinct even though i don't necessarily agree with it has to do with our fear of not being able to predict or control violence. The randomization of it is really what is driving a lot of the anxiety, even if it's at a much lower risk than something like a car accident, which we feel wrongly that we have more control over if we just drive safe, if we follow practices, if we're alert, et cetera. Well, and it's a class and an affluence thing, right? Affluent white people who read the New York Times, the Washington Post, probably don't feel like, and maybe statistically it's true, that they're not at risk for the kinds of um, uh, of gun crime that is affecting so many communities, they do feel at risk. But the mass shooting at the mall or the school could affect them and their families. That's their perception, even though yeah, it's incredibly right. unlikely. But it, 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 even as unlikely as it is, it's more likely than it, 
to be, you know, in a walking home at a, on a very unsafe street in a very unsafe part of the town and come across a robbery or gang violence or something like that, or a convenience store being robbed and someone runs out of it, that kind of thing, because they don't find themselves in those situations, yeah. is, is even more distant. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the comms PR choice to put this video out, obviously, it's well-produced. Like, yeah. the money was put into this. They put a casting call out. They hired the, the actors. No shade to anybody involved in the scripting or production of it. Work. it it's, it's well done for what it is, but the choice to invest all of these resources in this in particular, when what people are asking for is, like, more thorough background checks and red flag laws, and there were instances where the FBI had touched some of these shooters. Maybe they, they, maybe they moved the FBI agents who are in charge of like Twitter joke security and put them on this instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, the, I think I think there there should be some questioning. I, I wonder what our legislators have to say about the fact that they've been, you know, demanding and making criticisms of the FBI for not following the role they're already supposed to perform in some of these cases, looking into various people who have been on their radar that go ahead, go on to go and then commit atrocities, why it is that this seems to be maybe a deflection from the failures of the right. institution, especially at a moment when there are some pretty high-profile pro high figures questioning the funding of the institution as a whole and their role in killing various um, civil rights leaders. These killers leftists, are often known, often were known to law enforcement, including the FBI. That was true of the Parkland shooter and many others that we've we've covered. Yeah. Um, so it's, well, fair, it's certainly fair to question whether they're doing an effective job. Right. Is this, this is the deflection. Let us know in the comments what you make of this video. I suggest everybody go and watch it in full. It's hard to get a sense of the kind of fear, to your point, Robert. It really does seem to um, foster the broader culture of fear. And let us know if you find the advice contained within actually helpful. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Someone Sanders is a former Joe Biden mouthpiece and had this to say about the prospect of any debate with Marianne Williamson or RFK Jr. Let's watch. I really think that uh, the mealy mouth Democrats, as I like to call them, and some of my progressive friends who would like to live in a fantasy land, they need to come back to reality. Yeah. And the reality is this. The sitting president of the United States of America is a Democrat, a Democrat that would like to run for re-election so much so that he has declared a re-election campaign. Right. In that case, the Democratic National Committee will not facilitate a primary process. There will be no debate stage for Bobby Kennedy, Marine Will Marianne Williamson, or anyone else so we're going to have another Bobby Kennedy in an empty chair in the debate, right? There will be no debate. <laughs> yeah, no debate. The Democratic yeah. National Committee administers the debates, and they're not going to set up a primary process for debates to for someone to challenge the head of the Democratic Party. So there she is saying the quiet part out loud, way out loud. The Democratic Party has no obligation to be Democratic in the least. Of course, we knew this already, those of us from the Bernie bro world, which I should remind everybody, Simone Sanders used to be in the Bernie bro world back in 2016 in my former position as National Press Secretary. But after 2016, DNC lawyers argued in court that the DNC has the right to pick candidates in back rooms. It it, it, it argued that, it, it won its case, and now they're just saying out loud that they owe the American people absolutely nothing, even as the Democratic Party stands to front, once again, as they did in 2016, a historically unpopular candidate. 
There will be no debate. <laughs> Bow be down no before debate. the king. I mean, it's giving, I don't want to make too much of this, but it's giving, like, are we the bad guys energy, right? <laughs> How can you, and, and fine, maybe they're perfectly legally within their rights to, to, uh, to shorten this process so that it's just a coronation for President Joe Biden. Fine. I don't know. I don't know how they can then pretend to be the one, you know, the guardians of democracy, the vanguard of democracy, people who are totally, utterly uninterested in a debate with candidates who are performing well, the candidates, yes. you know, who are getting some significant poll numbers, not candidates who are like like half a percent, you know, and it's like, okay, is there, is, there's no real movement at all behind them, and it's not really fair to waste anyone's time. Yeah. Fine, I would understand. Yeah. But no, that's not the situation we're in. Yeah, and also they tend to do this thing, she alluded to it here, where they weaponize the idea that a a candidate, an incumbent candidate who was challenged historically goes on to lose the general election, even if they win the primary. And that for that reason, you know, George McGovern is evoked. For that reason, you can never allow there to be a primary challenge. It's utterly untrue. What it ignores is the extent to which those candidates got the primary challenge because they were historically weak candidates in the first instance. Right. And, and you have to, right, you'd have to, uh, they're talking about like 1968, and, right. et cetera. But, uh, the Clinton-Obama showdown was a bruising cage match to the very end, and it made Barack Obama a stronger candidate, probably. Yes. And then he went on to win the election somewhat decisively. Yes. So you can't make—sorry, in more recent history than the 1960s, you right. had uh, you had primary battles. Um, on the Republican side, Trump had to fight off— 15 people, some of them not very serious, but he had to fight off Ted Cruz and John Kasich and... Well, the argument that would be made in both of those cases is that they didn't have the incumbency already. Right. And that the counterexample the is that in 2020, you know, it, it, that, that, I mean, sure. that maybe he was bruised by having, you know, challengers. Into, I don't know. Like, but the, their, their argument would be that it's different in incumbency. I think that, one, we have too few examples to really be able to make that case. And two, at a certain point, your candidate is so weak. We just saw these polls. We talked about them yesterday, where Biden, Biden is down seven points against Donald Trump. Now, obviously, things change. We're, we've got a long way to the finish line, and Trump is not yet the nominee. But in that context, not to even be open to the possibility of what the party broadly has to offer, and to the extent that people like— um, uh, Simone Sanders are saying, you have to get back to reality. There's no serious challenger. These aren't serious candidates. And, the, and that the relative outsider status and marginal status of Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. are being used to justify the Democratic Party's mm -hmm. choice to ignore a primary race. That in and of itself is a construction. The Democratic Party has obviously told various other more mainstream candidates that they should sit out. And the reason why you're only having more marginal, quote unquote, French candidates in the race is precisely because the establishment has such a control over the right, establishment the ones who decide of the party. Who's a legitimate Right. Candidate. They're so, the ones yeah. deciding that. So they're, they're, they're setting the stage. They are designing a context where they can make the argument that there is not a legitimate field so we don't have to have a primary because they have constructed the non-primary to begin with. It's deeply disingenuous. And I think a lot of voters, I mean, I, I just did an interview with Ben, um, ben Norton, uh, a journalist that's um, based in uh, Nicaragua, and he was making the, the, the case that some, the majority of Americans, of course, identify as independents. I believe it's only 25 percent 
uh, that identify as Democrats, 25 percent of voters that, that identify as Republicans at this point. People aren't interested in these kind of party politics. It's why Donald Trump was appealing to folks as an outsider. It's why Bernie Sanders, an independent senator from Vermont, was so appealing to voters. And it's why people like RFK Jr., who is running very much as a Democrat on the Kennedy name and legacy, but taking a very adversarial position to the Democratic Party, is 20 percent in the polls. Why Marion Williamson, who has been a consummate outsider, who's never had, you know, a, a position, a role in government, and who has been very trenchant in her critique of corporate uh, crony capitalism and um, uh, the, the the swampiness of the swamp has been getting what nine percent in the polls as well. Yeah, absolutely, I think we got another clip from Simone Sanders that you wanted to play. Absolutely, let's roll it. And y'all can say whatever y'all want on background to the New York Times and any other paper. People can whisper all they want in the political playbook. Y'all know how this works, okay? If the sitting if the city the sitting president is a Democrat. The de facto, the head of the Democratic Party, okay? If the sitting president, who is a Democrat, would like to run for re-election, that's y'all nominee, honey. Ain't no... The DNC is not creating a, no. somebody, a process for somebody to primate the president. No, no. And so instead of people uh, playing in this fantasy land, like a, a Democratic primary and like Joe Biden, the reality is if the man wants to run for president, he is going to be the Democratic nominee. That's well, the reality. Yeah, that's, buck up, kids. You know, I mean, it's the reality because they're hop they're helping to they're, make they're it be the reality. reality. <laughs> we have such a toxic politics where the party apparatus is being deployed to protect principles as opposed to protect the party's principles. If we had a more parliamentary system where the figurehead was less of the issue and more of the party's agenda was what was driving politics, if the priority was who can we put forward who is actually going to win and actually going to protect the interests of the constituents that we say that we're fighting for, then we would perhaps have a Democratic Party that was willing to look internally and say, is Joe Biden the best representative here? But instead, it's it's her turn politics, where the Clintons have paid their dues and the Clintons are going to get what they're going to get, where people like Neera Tannen get shouted down for their OMB appointments, like the way they were after Joe Biden was first elected. But she played her role, and so they were just waiting in the wings to bring her back on board mm -hmm. into the advisory position she's being slotted in now to take over from uh, Susan Rice. Over and over and over again, it's pay for play. And absolutely none of the interests of the American people are being acknowledged in any part of this political process. It's disgusting. There will be no debate. That's yeah. what they said. Yeah. All right. That does it for us for today. But before we go, uh, we did want to mention um, Glenn Greenwald, a friend of the show, yeah. someone who's been on here many times, who's really an inspiration to us, great journalist. Uh, some really sad news in his family. He lost um, his husband, David Miranda, who's a Brazilian political figure. Very tragic, and we just wanted to wish him and his family all the best, uh, and we sh I'm sure you at home are wishing the same. So just Absolutely. wanted to note that. Such a tragedy. Um, I believe he passed away just a day before his 38th birthday. He had been in, in the hospital uh, for months now experiencing uh, prolonged illness, and it really is such a tragedy. Our, our thoughts and prayers go out to the family. Mm -hmm. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow.